Good morning. I'm Claudia Shamba, your host for the May 10th, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, it's a twofer, two different candidates that are running on your June 7 primary ballot. Ballots are moving out. Yesterday, the Orange County Registrar voters released them, so watch for them. But hang on, because we want you to have the benefit of lots of input, including the voice of OC that's going to be sending out their May 18 results of interviewing all the candidates. And Norberto's making sure they ask hard questions. So today's guests are Assemblyman Stephen Choi, who is challenging another assembly person, Kari Petrie-Norse, who are, they're both in their previous districts and they're all running, the two of them are running for the 73rd new redistrict. And in the second half, we're going to have on Michael Jacobs, who is one of three district attorney candidates challenging incumbent Todd Spitzer. We're gonna be right back after a real short one. So stay tuned. Let's start the show now. My first guest is Republican California Assemblyman Stephen Choi, currently representing the 68th District. He was elected two terms to the Irvine Unified School District School Board, then two terms on the Irvine City Council, and two terms as the mayor of Irvine. He's now running for his fourth term in the California Assembly, this time in the new 73rd district against Assemblywoman Cotty Petrie Norris. So two sitting representatives running in a new district, which includes all of Irvine, Costa Mesa, and portions of Tustin. Assemblyman Choi earned his Bachelor's of Arts from Kyung Hee University in Seoul, South Korea, his Master's of Arts in Library Science from Louisiana State University, and his PhD in Library and Information Science from the University of Pittsburgh. His professional experience includes working as a Peace Corps language instructor, college professor, and operating Kumon Math and Reading Center. Stephen Choi comes to us today from his district office in Irvine, and we're recording this on May 6th. Welcome back to Ask a Leader Assemblyman Stephen Choi. Thank you, Claudia. I'm happy to uh, speak with you today as a current uh, member uh, representing 68th District. You have uh, explained my background so well. I think I should uh, uh, hire you as my campaign manager or <laughs> field representative. You well. did a lot of research. You know. uh, mostly uh, you described it correctly and the Korean university that I graduated from is hard to pronounce because Americans don't have a lot of a wide sound. This should be like a Hyundai, you know, many people say Hyundai, Hyundai. And my university name is Kyung Hee University. Uh, that's the correct pronunciation. And then I did uh, teaching at the USC and the UCI and uh, among uh, several other colleges. Uh, uh, and then I uh, am deeply involved in education, currently serving as a vice chair of the edu Higher Education Committee, among others. Uh, 
And the new district is gonna be uh, 73, which I am excited to represent the entire city of Irvine, as well as a new uh, city of Costa Mesa, including my current district, uh, Tustin. So I'll be happy to discuss any issues you may have. Well, we are gonna mention those particular <laughs> committees. When you were last on this show, it was in 2014, you were running for the mayor of Irvine. And now you have a several state assembly terms under your belt. I'd like for you, Assemblyman Choi, to talk about the achievements in the state legislature that you're owning, that you learned the most from and you take the most pride in. Oh, I wish I uh, uh, had known <laughs> your question you are raising. Uh, I have. Uh, uh, I was uh, lucky that I introduced uh, <clears throat> several uh, bills, uh, uh, excluding last uh, couple of years uh, under uh, COVID. Uh, I was uh, lucky enough uh, as a minority member, Republican member, at least I was uh, succeeding, uh, uh, getting my bills uh, passed uh, up uh, Senate and an assembly and assigned by the governor and uh, made it into law. Um, and then also I have uh, several bills uh, right now uh, making progress. Uh, even yesterday, uh, three bills uh, passed uh, under the consent calendar without any debate. Uh, that, that means uh, all agreeable bipartisan way. Um, and uh, one of the things uh, that might be of a common interest might be uh, <clears throat> I am uh, uh, introducing a bill to make uh, daylight savings time as a permanent time. And uh, this uh, passed uh, two major committees uh, and we'll be heading to our floor pretty soon. Well, I also think of interest too to the immediate UC Irvine campus uh, you were you've been a co-sponsor of the select committee at, that's pushing out the legislation for uh, making California the first state in the nation to create a legislative committee focusing on the uh, student debt issue. What would you where is the status of that legislation today? Uh, I think that you are you, you are talking about the uh, uh, waiving all the student uh, the tuition debts. Yes. Yeah, that, that, that is uh, largely, it was uh, not uh, uh, directly my bill, but uh, is uh, uh, very uh, aggressively being pushed by, uh, I think, the Democratic members. Uh, and then I uh, supported those bills because uh, I know young people right now, they are facing very difficult, uh, you know, uh, time, especially pandemic, but even before the time when upon their graduation, they are facing very, very high, you know, uh, school debts. Uh, so any any uh, way we can relieve their uh, debts uh, so that they can start their career with a fresh mind uh, and uh, they can establish their life uh, uh, sooner than uh, later. So uh, any bills uh, benefiting students, uh, I am in support of that. One of the um, bills uh, even yesterday that uh, passed in the consent calendar was uh, uh, the mental health is a very, very hot issue, uh, especially uh, lately and uh, during the pandemic, uh, a lot of mental issues are rising. And uh, student IDs uh, at the UC uh, system and uh, Cal State, the students uh, will be asked to put uh, the uh, mental health uh, hotlines 
uh, on the ID so that they will have uh, easy access uh, to look up when they need that. And uh, if uh, the, each campus doesn't have uh, 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 such a center dealing with the mental issues on campus, at least that they can uh, put the community uh, hotline where mental issues are being dealt with and the students can be counseled. So bringing up those two aspects of student life, I hadn't planned on this, but I don't know how much Assemblyman Choi that your office and you are personally sort of registering what I'm hearing from faculty that are reporting there is that the pandemic is really showing in the kind of the mental state, the kind of bandwidth, which is sort of shrinking on uh, in the individual students setting in their sort of mindscape. And so I don't know if that kind of ripple effect of the pandemic is something that you can actually observe from your assembly office that is, it's sort of, we're, we're getting the warning and it, the ripple effect may have quite an impact for this sort of, we'll call it this professional class of students that are intending to graduate or have just recently graduated. Are you feeling that rippling effect for those constituents? Uh, I learned the uh, issues that is so pressing, not only uh, uh, at the uh, college level, but surprisingly enough, uh, even elementary school levels, elementary, middle school, and high school, as it goes up, uh, the uh, intensity of the problem uh, is uh, more severe. And then I uh, get uh, community people uh, and then also organizations calling in and meeting with me, uh, mostly uh, lately by uh, Zoom meetings uh, like this one. And uh, people tell me that this is a very serious matter. Uh, helpers uh, to fund, to hire more counselors, uh, more psychiatrists uh, on campuses. Uh, we need uh, more counselors. And uh, that's the cry I directly hear from the administrators uh, and the people in the community. So even though uh, I have not, uh, you know, fortunately, I have not dealt with uh, uh, in my family or friends or neighbors uh, uh, who have uh, suffered uh, while they are in school and the mental breakdown or depression or suicidal tendency uh, or flunking out or, or giving up the schooling. But the, that's the kind of things I hear uh, a lot of, uh, you know, the, the uprising trend. And then I ask uh, what the, in the world would be the problem because it's a lack of a social interaction because they are bound to the computer and the homes that they could not go out and play. And the human beings are, are social animals. So we need to interact with the other people, neighbors and the school friends. So when they are you know, blocked, I think that that is uh, the depression that is surprising me. Uh, that's what they experience. Uh, and that is uh, showing and the educators are alarmed about it and want to do something about it. So I've, I want to get at, at some of those features about how the pandemic's managed, but I want to stay with the policy aspect of how retiring student debt could deal with some of the bandwidth issues, the stress, the, that financial stress they're feeling from how will they pay off this loan debt that, it, it you know, the interest rates get to be more uh, the larger than the actual 
loan that was originally taken out. So I'm just wondering if, if you see a connection in the policymaking that you're involved with here and how that might be one way of dealing with the stress for this whole class of higher education uh, demographic. Yeah, I would just say uh, we are quite uh, fortunate that uh, since our state is uh, experiencing uh, what I hear is about uh, over $68 billion of a surplus, uh, that gives us a cushion uh, to do some extra things uh, that uh, we might have not uh, normally expected. Uh, and uh, this kind of uh, extra funding is uh, needed uh, for mental health issues, uh, uh, as well as uh, student debt. Uh, and some people uh, may experience uh, you know, finding jobs. Uh, it's uh, despite the fact that uh, employers are looking for uh, a good qualified employees. Uh, but uh, they are not uh, matching uh, uh, correctly. And even if uh, their you know, match is done, uh, their salary may not be uh, you know, uh, high enough uh, to retire their uh, debts uh, early enough. So that will drag on you know, uh, 10, 20 something years for them to pay. So uh, if we can uh, step in uh, with the, uh, uh, the surplus that uh, we, we have, uh, and uh, relieve them psychologically and an actual you know, financial uh, need uh, can be met for those who are struggling even to make uh, their family needs met uh, will be tremendous help. And then also at least uh, their you know, uh, worry, uh, depression and interest uh, compounding on it. Uh, so um, uh, luckily this uh, that uh, uh, waiver Proposals are many times uh, are being made. Uh, I think that's a, you know quite a few, not just one, uh, to my uh, memory, uh, have been introduced by Democratic members. Uh, once uh, this kind of a bill is uh, introduced by Democrats, uh, uh, they have a good chance. And then uh, also as a Republican, I'm willing to uh, support those uh, kind of uh, uh, bills uh, that will help our young people. For those of you who just joined us, my guest is Assemblyman Stephen Choi, currently representing the 68th District. And as a Republican, he's now running for his fourth term in the California Assembly, this time in the new 73rd District against Assemblywoman Kati Petrie-Norse, who is a Democrat. So the, this, just to remind folks, this new district includes Irvine, Costa Mesa, and portions of Tustin, that this is a primary, but only two are running in this race. So unless one of them wins outright by 50% plus one vote, we can expect that both candidates will be running in the general in November. But the, remember, reminding everybody, June 7th is the primary for California. So Assemblyman Choi, I'd like, because we're, we're sort of hinting a little bit at that, about the overlapping sorts of jurisdictions with federal legislators and the states, would you talk about the opportunities besides uh, retiring debt for students, the opportunities you found most impactful in coordinating with federal legislators in meeting the urgent developments or, in fact, toward building proactive institutions to head off future crises? Maybe you have some examples that come to top of mind. You know, uh, I don't know when this uh, radio, I can say that uh, my opponent doesn't even uh, live in my district and uh, wants to represent our district as a copy picker. Uh, so I think people need to know, you know, about the fact uh, 
and who has more interest. Uh, and uh, Irvine, city of Irvine happens to be uh, the largest city in the middle. And uh, of course the Mesa's are nearby, Tustin is uh, nearby. And um, I've been uh, serving my community uh, as long as uh, 24 years. Uh, I've been uh, deeply involved in the community uh, uh, involvement uh, in the development uh, and helping our district members, uh, even uh, COVID time, a lot of uh, uh, EDD issues, uh, unemployment uh, uh, benefit uh, issues, uh, thousands of uh, clients uh, we have helped. Uh, so even uh, this kind of uh, uh, that the wavering the proposals, uh, and not only at the state level, but we need to partner with the federal representatives, the congressional representatives, because they have uh, you know, obviously more budget and that this is a, not just a state issue, this is a, a national issue. Whoever uh, received uh, uh, any federal debt uh, or even local debt, uh, there are many uh, ways, uh, even my sister benefited uh, when she graduated from uh, medical school. She had uh, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt because we didn't have any money to support her. Everything that uh, uh, the tuition she had to pay was uh, through uh, either federal grant uh, or, or, or a debt, a personal loan. And uh, to get the benefit of uh, a student debt waive, uh, federal uh, government has uh, uh, certain uh, underprivileged rural area uh, where her doctors can go serve uh, for a certain period of time. Uh, I think she told me she was obligated to live uh, and serve uh, in that community at least for five years or seven years. And then her debt will be uh, waived. And uh, so she did. And uh, certainly uh, she uh, benefited from that kind of program. Uh, she loved the uh, uh, community she uh, settled in uh, to benefit uh, from that, uh, uh, that uh, forgive, uh, forgiveness uh, program. But uh, she loved the community. And uh, she's uh, living forever. She it became her permanent uh, location, and uh, with the, her English ability, Korean language, and then also Spanish. She's fluent in Spanish. A lot of I hear a lot of Spanish-speaking people. Uh, she's uh, serving in there, so you can see the benefits uh, of uh, such programs that either federal or local government uh, set up for loan forgiveness for certain group of people. Uh, even even for teachers, we we experience uh, teacher shortages, and uh, if they are encouraged to go to uh, communities or rural, rural area where severe shortage of teachers or nurses or, or uh, nurse practitioners or doctors, uh, we can create uh, more that kind of a uh, public-private uh, partnership, and the students uh, can benefit and uh, do serve their community not just a free gift of the money, do something for your community and the benefit. So this is a win-win situation, not only that uh, forgiveness, uh, the benefits that they will enjoy, but the, uh, the, the people of the rural uh, area, whereas uh, no, with uh, no such uh, program, uh, not too many doctors or nurses or teachers may come, but those programs will attract the young people, young graduates. So this is a win program. So I think a government has to think about coming up with a more similar programs so that we can serve the under 
serve the areas uh, and then also uh, let the students uh, with the debt uh, uh, can benefit from it. So you were talking about in terms of the debt forgiveness and other debt refinancing and renegotiating packages, but are there other sorts of ways that the federal, uh, the congressional delegation on Orange County have had an impact in coordinating on the interests that concern you? Can you just to give you a chance to talk about that coordination. We've had quite a dynamic delegation here in Orange County, a lot of them that are deeply involved with making government instruments more accountable, more transparent, sort of getting, getting commitments in really uh, some very high profile kinds of hearings. I don't know if there were any, any of those kinds of coordinations you'd like to call out for us in this interview that time we're together. Yeah, from my experience, frankly, even though we can talk about ideally coordination, you know, federal or state and local uh, elected officials work together. We all hear uh, such needs. So without uh, being told or being asked by other uh, elected officials, uh, whatever, you know, higher level or lower level, uh, I think we are just too busy uh, to coordinate. And okay. by, by coordinating, what do you mean? Will it feels like please, extra. Will, yeah, will you please introduce uh, such a bill? And that's what I'm doing in California. That would be really nice for you to do it uh, uh, in federal government. Uh, I mean, it, it, it is uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, less uh, efficient way. They already know about it. Okay. So, okay. Uh, yeah, even, even uh, for example, the daylight savings time to make a permanent time in California. I didn't coordinate with the federal government. Uh, I heard, uh, I read about uh, the uh, senators uh, passed that uh, such a bill and the waiting for the House of Representatives uh, to pass it. But we don't know how long it'll take. It may be quick, could be two years or three years, five years, it never, we don't know. So we decided, uh, uh, my consultants and my staff or myself uh, had a talk. Uh, this is a national trend that is uh, good uh, for California we are aligned with that uh, movement. And then I learned also 17 other states uh, have introduced uh, the same bill uh, to make a daily savings time as a permanent time, not the, the other way, standard time as a permanent time. So we, we follow that trend without any coordination of any senator or House of Representatives. Okay, thank you. So I, if you would, would you talk about what lessons you've learned on the many fronts that the pandemic has been dealt and how ready do you think we are for the next one? Because our epidemiologists tell us that, you know, there's, there's more pandemics that are coming. So talk about through the sort of the frame of getting the public behind supporting in the case of a, another kind of a public crisis, like the intensified drought and other sorts of uh, climate Manif change manifestations. What lessons have we learned from the pandemic that you think uh, prepare us for the next kind of hyper challenge? As a man, a man of a faith, uh, I am praying to God. Uh, this is a, a <clears throat> natural, uh, universal uh, phenomena that has happened. It is man-made, that naturally has happened, but it's a uh, uh, stripping the world and uh, has uh, killed uh, millions of people, even including the uh, United States. I uh, hear over a million people already died, so it could be several million people. 
China is uh, under intensive uh, right now overspread uh, of that the, the disease uh, way uh, beyond uh, the situation that uh, we are relaxing. And uh, what is uh, coming up? Uh, I don't think uh, I can tell. I'm not a doctor, a scientist, so uh, I cannot tell. But even if uh, I was a scientist or a doctor, uh, I don't think they can actually predict. It is coming or not coming. It's going down. Nobody can tell. But uh, now, at least we learned a lesson. Even this uh, severe uh, disaster, pandemic that we have experienced, uh, we need to work together, government uh, and, and also uh, the, the citizens uh, together instead of a uh, one-sided mandate. Uh, I think that was a lot of uh, people resisted. Uh, schools uh, shut down, businesses shut down, and the masks are required. Uh, even... Nobody knows. Uh, I get confused uh, sometimes. Uh, I didn't know when I got on the airplane, I should wear the, the mask or not someday. And uh, you know, Monday when there was a uh, rule against it uh, by the judge and uh, only a few people had uh, mask on. So I, uh, with the old vaccines, with the booster shots, I felt very comfortable. So I took my mine off. But uh, some people do did wear masks and individuals will know and will care about their health more than anybody else, not the government. I care about my body over being told by the government what to do. And the local situation, you know, US school situation is different from China. You know, how one size fits all, entire United States district you know, had to shut down at the same time and mandated to wear masks all together, despite the resistances that we have seen from parents and then also small businesses, half of the small businesses, especially like the small, the restaurant, mom and pop restaurants, I think roughly, you know, more than half of them have shut down and that they never can come back. And this is the time Government has to come up with uh, how to help them, how to revive them financially with the uh, regulations. So rather than just uh, choking the, you know, choking them to death uh, and with them, you know, un, unsubstantiated, uh, you know, mandates. So I think that's the lesson we should have learned. Uh, give them more freedom and uh, educate for people to choose what to do with their body and uh, local policies uh, such as a school district. Thank you for that. Um, I think this is a way to sort of in, to wrap the whole interview. We're combining a number of different features that we're covering here together. Right here at UC Irvine, we have so many phenomenal professors, really informed, deep thinkers. They're terrific resources in public health, like we're talking about the pandemic, in law, you know, uh, important institutions that protect us, at, uh, to protect democratic values, earth system scientists here, physical science and tech. And I get to interview them, Assemblyman Choi, I, all the time. They teach us all so much. So would you, Assemblyman Choi, tell us about the folks at UCI that you kind of keep in your brain trust presently and maybe over the years that you've been in elected office? And that's the last question. It's a big one. Yeah, you know, obviously professors are all the uh, educated people and the uh, research oriented, uh, most likely logic based uh, and the uh, science based. Uh, 
based upon uh, data collected and analyzing and make a uh, best uh, interpretations. So university professors uh, in the research institutions like UCI uh, has to become the resource that the uh, local governments, for example, superintendent can go to. You know, what would be our uh, likely uh, better policy for our students? Uh, for example, even uh, mandating uh, masks or even now making recommendations uh, for the, uh, uh, the vaccine shots uh, and uh, what kind of a health impact for young people will, will, will experience uh, even though federal government uh, you know, have forcefully saying that they, you know, all the students uh, now, I don't know how young it has gone down, but the last official word was uh, up to five years old uh, should be vaccinated and should be means uh, must, must be mandated, et cetera, et cetera. So I think a uh, local situation in you know, urban urban area uh, like LA or even uh, more highly uh, populated city or Rhine uh, will, will situation will be different from uh, remote uh, rural areas. So, so those are the, uh, the situations that they can analyze, uh, make uh, good recommendations to uh, let's say county-wide uh, uh, policymakers uh, such as uh, supervisors, county supervisors, so uh, they can use uh, in rural areas uh, is uh, less likely and uh, you can meet the uh, schools uh, without the mask uh, or vaccination may not be necessary up to certain. So rather than federal government, the one size fits all policy, I think we can utilize uh, local research centers uh, uh, with the high you know, uh, capability and the good uh, scholars uh, uh, that are within our community, like UCI. Are there any in particular that are part of the Stephen Choi Brain Trust and policymaking? My policymaking uh, a priority, I think, especially in it this. Used, the UCI professors that might be on in your Brain Trust that you you put on speed dial and you want you want some answers. Oh, I, I hope that uh, all the, uh, the uh, departments in the science area and especially medical field uh, will, will be monitoring very closely and uh, can uh, give you uh, the answers uh, like uh, you are anticipating from <laughs> the elected official of what the will uh, uh, be like in the future where the, pan and the pandemic will come around or not. Uh, I think that should be uh, in a better in a position to answer based upon the past trend uh, and the pandemic uh, uh, that the human race uh, has experienced. Uh, so future ones uh, um, may be similar to uh, the past ones that we have experienced, uh, but who knows, it may be you know, quite different. So uh, I cannot tell, but I think we should uh, utilize uh, local think tank uh, like, uh, like the scholars who uh, always uh, analyze uh, their data and uh, come to you know conclusions. Uh, you know conclusions should become uh, interpreted uh, uh, to policy level as an uh, uh, advisory resource. Well, it is a marvel to watch them rising to the occasion as some of these really critical developments are are taking place. Well, Assemblyman Choi, I thank you for taking the time today, and as I say to candidates, I. Thank you for running for elected office. Thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much for the opportunity speaking with you.
My guest was Assemblyman Stephen Choi. Yeah, I was a former faculty member of UCI. I taught the Korean language at the School of Humanities, East Asian Languages Department. Okay. But anyway, my guest was Assemblyman Stephen Choi, currently representing the 68th District. He's now running for his fourth term in the California Assembly, this time in the new 73rd District against Assemblywoman Kati Petrie-Norris. There are two sitting representatives running in a new district, which includes Irvine, Costa Mesa, and portions of Tustin. We're recording this on May 6th. Well, thank you for staying tuned. My next guest in this segment is the district attorney candidate that is challenging the incumbent here on June 7th and over is Michael A. Jacobs. And he is also he's practicing civil law currently over his career. He worked in the felony panel and the career criminal sexual assault, narcotics, special assignments and homicide units. His experience as a prosecutor includes as he, his, he, this is the website, folks. I, I, I really looked a lot of places for the bio, and and I'm going to ask you, Michael Jacobs, to put more in your bio so we have, uh, we've got lots of background. Like I don't know, I've got you at Loyola. I found that somewhere, but I don't know where you went as an undergrad. Oh, okay. What's well, Occidental College? Occidental. Okay. Over. Uh, so he's on. He cites his experience with as a prosecutor, including 141 jury trials, 71 were felonies, of which. 26 were homicides. He prosecuted the first case where a driving under the influence case resulted in a second degree murder conviction and prosecuted a serial sexual assault case where, for the first time in Orange County, DNA results were introduced into evidence. He initiated a review of a series of sexual assault homicides that occurred in the late 1970s. So this uh, it's He's also freed an innocent man who was wrongly convicted on one of the offenses that had served 16 years in prison. In 2001, he initiated the Orange County Innocence Project involving the OC district attorney forms to all of the, um, the state prison facilities for inmates who felt they had been wrongly convicted. And you heard him say he uh, completed his undergraduate work at Occidental University and his law degree at Loyola Law School in L.A., Michael Jacobs comes to us today from his office in Irvine. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Michael Jacobs. Well, thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you. I There's a lot to cover. I know that's, that's like a standard refrain, but uh, what I'm going to try to make sure we can do is give you a chance to talk about policy, staying with policy, exploring priorities, transparency, and agency culture, and collaboration, I hope we can get that in, on the new mental health initiatives. And so as Mike Moodian, a poli-sci professor at Chapman University, recently pointed out, and echoing other people's assessments, as chief prosecutor, the Orange County District Attorney has an extraordinary amount of power right up there, hand-in-hand, with the sheriff of the county. So considering the many models of district attorney around the country, what is the one that you think presents the most effective results here? Are you talking about overall policy? In, in the model, of- the model, sort of like the punitive, rehabilitative uh, district attorney. Every the prosecutor is a hammer. Everything looks like a nail. So well, I don't know if you because you've got so much 
background in in your prosecutorial profession and so and we'll we'll talk a little bit about that. I'm not going to be sensational, Michael. I'm just going to let you know that in advance because there there's a lot there, but but I want to know right now at this point in your legal career and as a candidate for district attorney, is there some model of DA around the country that you espouse the most? Well, it's not, there isn't one particular DA. There, there is a theory that, that's been in and out of um, popularity called the broken windows theory of enforcement, which is, um, without going into too much detail, it's, it's pretty much the opposite of the progressive, woke, or equity type of um, enforcement that we're seeing from some of the district attorneys in the larger cities. And what the broken windows is, it's really designed to combat the the problems that have arisen from that type of um, enforcement. And it's a broken windows means exactly what it says. It kind of is like, okay, we're going to enforce everything from vandalism to jaywalking to drunk driving to, um, uh, uh, to, to drugs that we're, we're not going to uh, let anything go. And we're only going to, uh, we're only going to give the programs to the people who look like they're going to benefit for it. In other words, I favor strict enforcement over to over lax enforcement. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And all of those those uh, cues, those uh, brands are very illustrative of where you're headed with that. So your that's your philosophy and we know that the incumbent is running against the LA district attorney when he's he's never missed a, a chance to do that so it sounds like you're you're running against the LA district attorney as well <laughs> um well I, I think you know it's kind of like uh, the proof's in the pudding you know and 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 look what's happened up to LA and um uh Todd Spitzer and I differ on a number of different things but as far as general policy as far as uh enforcement of the law and not giving in to any of those um, those progressive movements, and just philosophically, from a philosophical viewpoint, the problem with the one of the built-in problems with the progressive um, equitable movement is that you're really kind of social, trying to social engineer from the rear end. You have a problem, you have crimes being committed, and you try to say, well, we'll just let the person go and see if they get better, and they stop doing this. Well, that's never worked. That's never worked. You know, it's like um, the person you, you need. There always has been a requirement of some kind of punishment that meets the crime. If you just let everybody go free, there's no there's no reason for them to rehabilitate, if, especially if they've never been habilitated. So it's just kind of really common sense. You know, we, we can't just have an open door policy. We can't have no bail. We can't have um, everything become an infraction or misdemeanors. That that'll lead to anarchy, and and that's what's happening in what New York, Chicago, San Francisco, some of the, the larger cities where they're doing this new progressive, um, equitable type of law, and you know just everybody gets out so that they can go do more shoplifting, more burglaries. And California, they've raised the um, price to, I guess, the, the value of goods stolen to 950 instead of 400 for a felony. So it means you can keep going and keep stealing. And when you try attempts to change the legislature and to add those smaller crimes up to one larger crime, those have been defeated in, in committee. So there isn't going to be any change in the law. So you have to um, you have to tighten up on the enforcement. So Forgive me a crude shorthand, but in the interest of time, I have to use it. 
your career with the district attorney previously, there was a problematic use of informants. So what, in your experience, have you have you reconsidered the way that kind of process issue and the kind of culture you as the new district attorney would establish and build and 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 be more transparent about well i, I think the, the the problem that comes to mind from uh, i wasn't in the office of course when the, the cry the decry case happened and the death penalty was removed because of the overuse of the sheriff's um uh special units um i think the problem really is, is for one is education okay one is education understanding um the right to counsel in the fifth and the both the fifth and sixth amendment and that you can't there's a difference between an informant who's i would call like a legitimate informant who without any other connections or establishments or contracts expressed or applied with law enforcement actually volunteers information okay and then um, if he does that the, then the issue really be, there's really twofold things when you're looking at an informant the question is, is is he an agent because if he's an agent if the law is going to define him as an agent it's not going to be admissible and you're going to have all kinds of legal problems getting that getting into that area and then the second thing the second about part of the evaluation is do you really need this witness and is he reliable and basically reliable usually means an examination of his background an examination of what he has to offer and is there anything inherently reliable that makes him credible if not and he could have either made it up or got it from a newspaper you don't use them so i don't i don't i'm not sure that you need special ironclad policies you just need to implement what the law requires and know how know what the law is, and then you the whole problem in decry would have been avoided, I think, if the deputies involved, the deputy district attorneys involved, were a little bit more educated on the Sixth Amendment. Okay, does that help? That well, that's the that's the beginning of it. I'm getting I'm learn I'm uh, learning how to fly a plane, uh, at, build okay. a plane in midair, and I'm not going to be uh, presumptuous about my my training and and my sort of generalist disposition that I bring to the interview. For those of you that have just joined us, my guest is Michael A. Jacobs, because there's a few Michael Jacobs around the world. Michael A. Jacobs, former district assistant district attorney, now civil law attorney, and currently a candidate for the Orange County District Attorney, challenging along with Pete Hardin and Brian Chayhawk, the incumbent Todd Spitzer in the California June 7th primary. And I've already let people know that the Voice of OC is going to be issuing on May 18th a rundown of all of the candidates so that it'll give people a chance to sort of know what's going on down ballot, because that's the hardest sell is to get all voters to, to work down ballots where the district attorney's office is. So then I want to bring up in, the, you, in your own statement, you said in your career you, you were fortunate to be trained, supervised and trained by some of the best trial attorneys ever worked in the office and it helped you in your career. But I mean, it, it was problematic. Is there just any sort of basic lessons learned about what you're going to take in leading the Orange County District Attorney, which is we all remind everybody that this is the fifth largest in population county in the country. So as the incumbent talks about, this is the biggest law firm in Orange County. So any uh, this is a chance to do the earnest work. Of what it, what lessons did you learn with that whole debacle around the Escalera case? Well, around uh, the whole thing that I learned really was um, you need to be 
you need to vet uh, informants very very carefully and in your and their background. Escalera uh, had some very was very reliable and that he had credible evidence that he didn't get from anywhere else. However, the background, what I learned about afterwards, um, was might have eliminated him from being used at all. And what it meant to me is you need to do a really good background check on these people before you use them. Okay. That's what it meant. I the, the, His ties to other law enforcement agencies were unknown to me until long, many years after the trial. And the discovery didn't do any damage to the appeals because there was no, there was no hiding of evidence. And I think what, what I learned from that is you need to be more proactive. Okay, if you didn't know about it and you couldn't, didn't make discovery of it, that, that'll get you off the hook as far as misconduct or damaging the case. But if you want to try a case and avoid those issues, then you need to do a better job betting informants for the future. And I think that lesson has been learned by the OCDA. So I guess I'm, I'm going to collapse another couple of really uh, sort of heavy weight kinds of issues is that you're, you're planning, you'd like to see Prop 47 repealed, getting criminals off the streets. And I want to collapse in with a question of the nation's sort of reconsidering collectively the whole criminal justice. Some people, didn't, they just want to take the criminal part, just the justice part. So reconciling your disposition about Prop 47 and the criminal justice reconsideration where you're talking about upstream what are the causing these cases to happen. is So there's the homeless that are sort of in a recurrent disposition of committing crimes because they're, they're unhoused. They have nothing, nothing going for them. So I don't know. How are you uh, reconsidering the criminal justice system, wishing to repeal Prop 47 and make it safer for everybody? Are, I mean, uh, maybe uh, we could look at our, the, the well, you, classic. Well, you know, you're, I think you're talking about two kinds. Of, okay. I understand. The homeless, but the homeless they feed issue, in. Of course. Well, the, the homeless issue, you know, is a, is, a, is a social economic issue. Okay. And. The problem is, like, you have the legislature trying to resolve that and throwing millions, billions of dollars into plans that don't work. Okay, and, like, um, how do you reconcile Prop 47? Well, Prop 47 isn't helping things now because it's not getting help to the homeless. Okay, and what it's done is is decriminalize some of the things or make less uh, serious some of the the things that the homeless uh, homeless people can get involved in. But... You know, as a prosecutor, you're a little bit restricted. You know, I, I cannot come up um, with socioeconomic uh, plans that the legislature can. I can only enforce the law that's there. Um, there's not much I can do. However, there's no question in my mind that um, there needs to be a plan to get homeless people off the street. And I, I kind of doubt I have some problems with the plans that have been proposed by uh, Governor Newsom, particularly when it involves incarcerating of declaring conservatorships and putting people in custody for for the crime of being homeless. So uh, I I don't I'm not real pleased, and I don't think that plan is is going to be that effective. There are other methods of you know reeducation. There's reeducation. There's housing. There's um, all kinds of other uh, assistance that we need to do for the homeless people. But like I said, as the district attorney, I really don't have much say or input into that. I only, uh, my job, the district attorney enforces the law. 
and try and do that as, as equitably and as um, fairly as possible. I'm not sure if that answers you, answers the question, but I'm not sure if there really is a good answer right now. Well, that's how unwieldy. I, I own that uh, that it is that unwieldy. So I, I wanted to make all the interviews among the district attorney candidates comparable, and so I'm going to be raising with everybody the Be Well OC, uh, that program, How what whether the district attorney's office has tools to help deliver that so that that's one upstream factor that may be diminishing where people have criminal outcomes. Well, that's true. And like I said, um, the the criminal courts, although I I understand there are new programs, okay, especially for veterans, uh, but there there isn't really a a cure or a tool that the district attorney has right now. Okay. Well, thank you. So I um, I'm mentioning, I, I want p- for people to know that tonight, and not, you'll be there, I know, Michael Jacobs, the League of Women Voters will have a candidate forum for all of the candidates. Sometimes not all four candidates show up. It's tonight, 7 to 8.30 p.m., and folks need to register with the League of Women Voters online, and then there'll be a recording available. So that's for what all the th- questions that I don't get to ask now, I'm going to dish it over to the League to, to okay. do that that kind of thing. So, well, you are a proponent of the Second Amendment, a full-throated a, a proponent. So I want to know if that is an upstream matter for law enforcement, that promoting the Second Amendment, does that mean that there are more firearms around. There's ghost firearms that uh, the senator representing us in the California uh, Senate, David Min, has been working on a lot. So could you tell us about how you reconcile promoting the Second Amendment with other with criminal outcomes in the county? Well, I think, you know, lawful possession of fire. I, I, when I say Second Amendment, I'm not for the wholesale distribution of guns, especially to people who shouldn't have them. I believe that the citizens who, who qualify, they have an absolute right under the Second Amendment to, to bear firearms. And I think um, one of the problems in historically countries that start taking that away, you start having a, a rise in crime and a, and a rise in over, over government uh, uh, influence. So I, I think that, no, I, I stand for the fact that, um, no, uh, citizens who are qualified, who um, have a right their rights shouldn't be infringed upon. And I, the legislature likes to take little chunks and bites away from it, taking away certain um, kinds of ammunition, certain kinds of um, firearms. And it's, it's a process that's, that's never going to stop, at least in California, with them trying to put restrictions on, on the ownership of guns. And at some point, I, I'm not, I have no problem with uh, background checks and, and regulating and, and uh, keeping records of, of, of gun transactions, but um, I do have a problem with restricting ownership uh, and from people who have a right to and are not disqualified. So I, I think, that, like they say, I have a kind of a qualified answer. Yeah, I believe in the Second Amendment, but I also believe that the reasonable restrictions are not out of line and are probably necessary. The problem is you get um, it's very difficult to enforce them because no matter who you are, it's pretty easy to go out of state and get what you want out of state and just lie about your residence. And so that's a problem because of lack of uniformity among the different states. 
So do district attorneys get to come out and uh, endorse legislation like the, the ghost gun measure in, in the California State Senate? Sure. What's yeah, your position do. on the, that? The, CDA, the California DA's Association has a pretty strong lobby and uh, a pretty strong and effective lobby in Sacramento. And your position on the ghost gun measure? You know, um, I haven't really made up my mind on the ghost gun uh, on. The, on the ghost gun measure, I, I have. A, I think there's a real problem with those kind of guns, but I haven't researched it yet to really to formulate exactly what what position I take on that. And this is where I wish I had that number right in front of me. There's a lot of data points for for all the topics we cover here on Ask a Leader, but that but it it, it there was a real recent one that was a, a big problem, and I believe it was in maybe Orange County, but certainly in Southern California. So. I just, I guess, let's make this the last question. It's a, a more of a, it's a process kind of a question. Is how are okay. you getting people to vote down ballot? What's your approach? You know what? Um, that's a, a great question, and I decided right before I got into this race because I, I was short on time. You know, my, two of my um, opponents, uh, uh, Pete Harden and Tom and Todd Spitzer had been campaigning for over a year when I jumped in in, um, in February. And so to answer your question, what I've done is I've, um, I've basically used social media to try. I've used um, Facebook, Google, and Twitter to do most of my advertising and campaigning. And I guess we'll find out how effective it is, but the, um, the analytics show a tremendous am- amount of, of traffic and the company I used is called uh, Drive Traffic Media, and that's what I've tried to use, use social media to get people interested in, in the election. And then uh, just some old-fashioned walking uh, precincts. You know, I've done some walking and talking in my neighborhood and trying to, but there's 1.7 million registered voters in Orange County, and it's hard to reach all of them uh, at all and then to, to make and to uh, get them interested in, a, in the district attorney, as you as you pointed out, a down ballot uh, position, and some people out there don't even know what the district attorney does, and and I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised because um, for most people, uh, the district attorney and what he does doesn't enter into their lives. Only when something um, uh, you know something happens to their family or there's a crime in the neighborhood does it even come into play. So, yeah, it's been an issue. And like I said, I tried uh, using social media, and I guess we'll find out in a few weeks how effective that was. So that's that's really helpful. And I, I'm going to let the League of Women Voters that forms tonight, if you all are listening to us live here, there's an opportunity to uh, hear more questions than I was able to get answered there. So, Michael Jacobs, I do thank you for being on the show today and giving us uh, some more insight about a pretty, like I said, it's the biggest law firm in Orange County and a very big county in the whole country. So thank you for your time today. And I like to thank candidates for running in elections. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. I thank you. That was Michael Jacobs. He is one of three challenging district attorney, Todd Spitzer. Well, that's my wrap. And for next week's show, more primary coverage with Orange County Board of Education candidate in our second district. We're in the second district now, Martha Floor. 
Eyes down there, that is down ticket. Talk with you next week, and thank you for listening, everyone. Yeah.